Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. All right, good morning to you. This is Mike Smith, and we start today with money laundering in B.C. The final public inquiry report is out this week, identifying billions in dirty dollars and criminal cash sloshing through B.C.'s economy, including and especially B.C. casinos. Who is to blame for this? Why did it happen? we got a terrific panel standing by on this. But first, let's have a listen to Commissioner Austin Cullen, who says money laundering has been ignored for far too long in this province. Have a listen. For too long, money laundering has been kept on the sidelines for police, for law enforcement, for regulators, and for governments. Money laundering has rarely been given priority Uh, Too often, it has been largely ignored. Why has it been ignored? Here's Colin talking about that. I think there was a lack of will that that underlay uh, BCLC's um, approach to the, the question. Law enforcement and regulators will need to be focused and committed to change. Okay, let's discuss this issue now. What a great panel we've assembled for you on it. Andrew Mercier is the NDP MLA for Langley, and I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Andrew, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me on, Mike. Yeah, you bet. Thank you. Also on the line, Mike Bernier, Liberal MLA for Peace River South. Mike, welcome back. My pleasure. Good morning. All right, gentlemen, thank you to both of you for doing this. Andrew Mercier, let me go to you first. This report pointed a finger at the former Liberal government of Christy Clark, said they did not do enough to clean this up. But he also said there was no corruption involved here. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think, Mike, that uh, a lack of corruption is a pretty low bar to hold yourself to as government. I mean, the report uh, that Justin Cullen has produced, to my view, and having gone through it, is fairly damning here. And what he found was a complete lack of will on the political part of government to address the issue. I mean, the uh, it's egregious that for the better part of a decade, for the better part of a decade, organized criminals were allowed to use regulated industries in British Columbia to their financial advantage. And I just want to say, Kevin Falcon, in March, uh, in March, he told the media that if the commission report found that in any way, that uh, in any way the Liberal government had any accountability in this, he would apologize. And I think he should do that. Reading about, uh, sorry, but reading about um, the, the condemnation of his ministers, uh, I think that needs to happen, Mike. Liberal MLA, Mike Bernier, how do you respond to that? Yeah, good morning. Well, I mean, obviously, when you look at the report, it was uh, an important report. And we, and we thank Justice Colin for the thorough uh, work that he did. Uh, when you look at some of the comments he made, he acknowledged that, you know, this was an issue and that government took uh, reasonable steps to try to curb the money laundering. It was something we were aware of. Steps were being uh, taken. He did highlight, though, uh, fairly that it, it wasn't sufficient and it kept on continuing on. But 
But, you know, I do find it interesting, um, the, the narrative that the NDP are now uh, trying to spin this on, which the commissioner himself even said um, to not do exactly what uh, Mr. Mercier, David Eby and the NDP are now doing here, that we need to focus on the issue uh, rather than trying to politicize this, which is what they continue to try to do. OK, I, Andrew Mercy, I know you want to respond to that, but let me play here a clip here of Liberal leader Kevin Falcon that Andrew Mercier, you just referenced here a short time ago. So this is Falcon speaking back when he was running for the Liberal Party leadership several weeks ago. Have a listen, and then we'll discuss. I wasn't in government when when this problem blew up, but I'm very interested in seeing the results of this commission. And I want you to know this, that if it points out that while we were in government, we were in any way responsible, I will absolutely apologize on behalf of our party and and, uh, whatever we did not do well. Liberal MLA, Mike Bernier, will Kevin Falcon apologize, as he promised to do there in that clip? Well, I think it's really important, though, Mike, to highlight that, uh, you know, steps were being taken. And Mike DeYoung uh, came out a couple of days ago and acknowledged and and also said, as one of the people that was referenced in the report, uh, that we do take responsibility that we maybe did not go far enough in uh, in many areas. But I think it's also important to highlight, Mike, um, that Kevin Falcon was not part of this. He was not even mentioned in the report at all. Um, Mr. Cullen did not find any need to call him as a witness. Where is the Where is the apology, though? He said he would apologize. Yeah, I mean, we have to look at the fact that we have this report in front of us. We're going to look at all of the details. Uh, I'm going to talk with uh, all of us in the party because we have to obviously do some soul searching. But, you know, Mr. Falcon, again, was not part of any of this. He's also in a state right now where he's looking at the report and wondering why David Eby's not uh, admitting that he's going to implement any of the recommendations yet. Andrew Mercier, your thoughts? Yeah, I'd say a few things on that. I'd say, you know, number one, you don't get to skate by by saying Kevin Falcon wasn't in government. This is a question of political accountability. And Kevin Falcon clearly understood that, clearly understood that when he said he would apologize. It did not take Mike DeYoung, your attorney general critic, very long to look at the report and to admit, I think we are responsible, which were, uh, which were his words about it. Um, and the the language in the report, I mean, is just damning. Like, if you look at what they said about Rich Coleman or what Justice Cullen said about Rich Coleman, he says he should have recognized there was a need to take aggressive action to bring an immediate end to suspicious activity that by the end of his tenure was clearly spiraling, spiraling out of control. Coleman did not take such action, and a critical opportunity was missed. This okay. Is a, yeah. This is a Mike high Bur- issue of public salience. Mike, Liberal MLA, Mike Bernier, go ahead. Yeah, well, I think it's, again, you know, the NDP are trying to cherry pick uh, parts out of this 1,800-page report because Mr. Cullen was very specific that there were things that were being done, that uh, the ministers at the time that uh, Mr. Mercier referenced were taking reasonable steps and understood the issue and were trying to uh, try to curb the issue in, as money, of money laundering. But obviously, uh, they also said that they weren't sufficient steps. More could have been done. We've acknowledged that, uh, and we know we need to look at the, all of the uh, different recommendations in the report and move forward. But again, I do find, I do find it very interesting, uh, timing-wise, how the, the NDP are trying to uh, uh, bring this forward now and politicize this issue at the same time that they're trying to change the narrative Let- uh, with the museum issues and all the other failings that they've had. Let me play another clip here. This is from Patrick McGowan, who is the lead counsel at the Public Inquiry, making the point here about whether there was corruption involved in this. 
and we'll get your thoughts. Patrick McGowan, have a listen. None of those failures were motivated by uh, the hope of personal, financial, political, or, or some other type of gain. Okay. The, the commissioner said there is no corruption involved here, Andrew Mercier. Your thoughts on that? I mean, if it's not corruption, what was it, in your opinion? Willful blindness, you know, I, just I, good old-fashioned incompetence? Yeah, so I think the harm, the harm to the public and the harm to the economy and the harm to British Columbia is the same. It's like saying uh, you were an in- inattentive driver and you drove your car into a ditch and injured somebody. But, you know, you weren't drunk, so it's okay. Not being corrupt is a very very low bar to hold yourself to. And I want to just make a comment uh, comment in response to Mr. Bernier there about timing and the interest in timing. What I found was interesting, reading the report, uh, was uh, talking about political will, was the year 2018, when David Eby became Attorney General uh, and appointed Peter German to write a rep- uh, to look into ways to prevent money laundering and then enacted it. And one of the things that Mr. Cullen gets into in the report was the uh, the fact that the briefings and contradictory information being received by uh, by David Eby were the same as that, or done in the same manner as that by uh, the Liberal cabinet ministers. The difference was political will. The difference was the will to act. Mike, Mike Bernier, your response. Well, um, I think Mr. Mercier should read the entire report because part of that report also talks about Housing Minister David Eby, how he had to now apologize because he's been going out and blaming uh, our Asian community uh, right around the province for money laundering. In fact, so he well, instigated a, ra- a racist study in 2015 where he wanted to go out and find out every homeowner in British Columbia that had an Asian last name, which uh, he was forced to apologize for in the, in the uh, report here. So, you know, it's really, it's really unfortunate that the NDP are trying to politicize this and not looking at all the issues facing British Columbians, which is 80% of British Columbians are blaming this government for their lack of help around affordability. That's why they're trying to change the channel. Andrew Mercier. Well, I'd say the only one who's doing aggressive channel changing right now is uh, Mr. Bernier and the BC Liberals. I mean, the fact is, number one, what I would say is we came into government and in opposition as well, driven by the issue of housing affordability and looking at things like money laundering. And we relied on and looked to uh, experts studying at the time. Very complex issue. I think Mr. Bernier's characterization of David Eby as racist is egregious, uh, is something that he should apologize for. But I'll leave that to Mr. Bernier. But I want to get back to the point because I don't want this to be lost here, Mike. Kevin Falcon said he would apologize. It took Mike Young a day to look at it and say, we are responsible, I accept it. Okay, last, Mike Bernier, you get the last word there. What about that apology? I think it was a pretty clear commitment from Falcon that we played there that he would apologize if the Liberals were in any, any way to blame, as he pointed out. Where, yeah, where's the apology? I mean, yeah, I mean, obviously, we're going to be looking at the entire report, but let's, let's be clear here. Um, you know, Justice Cullen uh, did say right from the get-go uh, that Mr. Falcon was not involved in this in any way. He was not uh, being called as a witness because he had no involvement at all. He said that government right. took reasonable steps, but yes, we could have uh, gone further on, on some of the issues. I mean, government, I think, will always look in the rearview mirror and sometimes wonder if they could have done more, and steps were being taken. Uh, it, was it enough? Uh, obviously, it okay. wasn't, uh, and that's why we're looking at the report and the all recommendations right. being implemented. I wasn't in government when, when this problem blew up. But I'm very interested in seeing the results of this commission. And I want you to know this. 
that if it points out that while we were in government, we were in any way responsible, I will absolutely apologize on behalf of you know, our party and, and uh, whatever we did not do well. As B.C. Liberal leader Kevin Falcon several weeks ago, where's the apology, Kevin? Let's go. You said you would apologize. Time for the apology. I haven't heard one yet. Let's go to your phone call, Steve, in the West End. Hi. Hi, Mike. Yes, uh, this wasn't uh, this wasn't a, uh, a a slight oversight. This was absolute premeditated dismissal. Um, you, your guest saying basically you, using the race card and, and you know lumping all Asians. The reality is this: dirty money came from China in Chinese triads. This is documented, really. So I, it didn't come from Mongolia or Korea. It came from CCP China. What I would be interested in to know is if this uh, report that was put out, this 1,800-page report, talked about the Great Canadian Casino that was partnered with a Macau crime boss that had opened up a, a gambling cruise ship so that they could skirt laws. They literally, okay, okay. according to Sam Cooper, had boats with loan shark money feeding this casino boat. Thank you. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Steve, for the call. I'm not certain if that is addressed in the report or not, to be honest with you. Ken and Langley. Hi, Ken. Go ahead. Hi. Yeah, I'm Kevin Falcon wasn't involved, so I don't care about his apologies. I care about punishments. Colin, as far as I'm concerned, uh, what he said, there's no evidence of corruption, is a farce. Yeah. How is it not corruption when Coleman, DeYoung, and the bigwigs, they knew in the BCL, see, knew that that money was going through this place for so long. Coleman shut down that police investigative team when that cop, the leader of that team, brought that forward. That was shut down. He was, uh, he was dressed down and screwed around. And if that's not corruption by Coleman, DeYoung, and the high officials, I don't know what is. And Coleman, if there's thank you for the call. Well, I mean... How many experts, if it's not corruption, what was it? Was it turning a blind eye because there was so much money flowing into government coffers from all this casino cash? Was it just plain old incompetence? Deborah in Abbotsford, hi. Hi. Nobody's really mentioned anything about the fact that this is a federal responsibility, money laundering. Yeah. And I know somebody in the, the casino organizations, and they they did know about it, and they did try and get something done about it. But you could jump up and down and hold your breath if yep. the feds aren't going to do anything about it. And look at our look at our government, like our federal government. They're very China friendly, right? So, anyway, my thoughts. Thank you, Deborah, for that. I think it's a good point, and certainly that report did squarely put a lot of the blame on the feds as well. Jerry and Kamloops. Hi, Jerry. What do you think? I think that uh, the NDP had a opposition uh, critic in the same portfolio as uh, DeYoung and uh, the other guy, and I and I don't remember anybody saying anything about it at the time. I, I'm, you, you lost me. I'm, I'm not sure what you're trying to say. What? I'm saying that the NDP had all that same information at the time, and I don't remember a big hue and cry from them at the time about it. Okay, thank you for the call. Well, I do remember that the first time that they put up the uh, blackjack limits, I think it was 500 bucks a hand. That was the NDP before the Liberals. Hal in Vancouver. Hi, Hal, you got 30 seconds. Yeah, hi, I'm just wondering what role the cities have in all of this. Didn't the people in Richmond City Council and Vancouver Council and Coquitlam Council, you know, these casinos are operating under business licenses in these cities. Didn't they have a clue what was going on? 
All right, let's talk about the proposed warning labels from Health Canada on your package of ground beef when you go to the supermarket. We talked about this on the show yesterday. The concern from Health Canada is saturated fat in ground beef. They want to put a warning label on the package when you buy some hamburger at the store. Now, we talked about this yesterday with Jennifer Babcock. She's with the Canadian Cattlemen's Association, and they represent Canada's uh, beef ranchers in the beef industry. And she pointed out to me that, look, this would not apply if you're buying a steak, right? It's only applying for ground beef. So check out this point that she made to me yesterday on yesterday's show. Have a listen. If you go to the grocery store and ask your butcher to turn a roast into ground beef on one side of the grinder, you don't need the warning label. On the other side, when it's grind, uh, all of a sudden it's going to have a warning label on it. So it doesn't make sense to us. We are requesting Health Canada to, to change this Okay, let's discuss now with my guest, Professor Sylvain Charlebois from Dalhousie University in Nova Scotia. He is Canada's food professor. I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Sylvain, thank you for coming on today. My pleasure. Okay, a warning labels on ground beef. Does this make sense to you? Is this the right way to go? It is bizarre. It is bizarre, <laughs> I, have to, I have to admit. So, first of all, I think most, most of the food industry is supportive of the front of package labeling uh, policy. Uh, it is going to make our food uh, healthier, uh, really. I mean, what we what we saw with trans fats about two decades ago was a food industry that was forced to label trans fats, and look what happened. Trans fats are mostly gone uh, because companies basically reformulated their products. Now, with ground beef, it's hard to do make any changes when you're dealing with a single ingredient product this the spirit behind the front of package labeling policy is really much about you know enticing industry to reformulate and and work on on products to make products healthier so everyone's supportive even the beef industry what is unclear here uh, is the list of exceptions uh, dairy is exempt but not ground meat and ground meat from a protein affordability perspective, is is key because 50% of all beef in Canada is sold as ground beef. And ground beef is the most affordable source of animal protein we have. Right. And so the only version you would have access to would be extra lean uh, ground beef. Uh, all the other, uh, all the others will likely disappear because grocers aren't interested in selling a product with a label on a package telling consumers that it's unhealthy. Okay, does it? How would this work now? Like, if you go to the store and the supermarket's required to put this warning label on your package of ground beef, what if you go to a McDonald's and you order a, a Big Mac? Is there going to be a warning label? on your Big Mac saying this contains ground beef? Warning, this is bad no. for your health? No, food service is excluded. We're talking about retail here. Yeah. Uh, some products are, like farmer's markets are exempt. Um, oh. If you're selling to a company uh, and not the consumer, you're exempt as well. Food service is exempt. So there are several exemptions. And, and most co- countries that have actually come uh, come forward with a, a similar policy. Have done the same thing. They've went ahead with these labels, and they do work. By the way, they do work. They do discourage consumers from buying these products, which is why 
I mean, some people are saying, you know what? I don't care about these labels. I'm not going to look at them. I'm just going to continue on buying these products. Here's the deal. You won't have access to them because grocers won't carry them. Mm. It's all about image. And that's, and so what is likely to happen for our pocketbooks is that the meat counter could actually get more expensive because the only version you will have access to is extra lean. Extra lean is typically more expensive. So extra lean beef, ground beef, would not be required to carry the label. Is that correct? That is correct. Same for pork and, and any other types of meat as well. Mm. Okay. Let me ask you this. Like, uh, taking a look at the Health Canada plan here, they say this is they want to encourage Canadians to make healthy food choices, which I, I understand. So one of their concerns is saturated fat. They also say they are concerned about salt, excessive salt, and sugar. So will there also be warning labels on junk food or potato chips, cookies, all that stuff in the supermarket that has excessive sodium and sugar? Will those have a warning labels too? Well, it depends if they meet the threshold, the Health Canada's threshold of 15%. Uh, of, of the daily value intake for uh, uh, a consumer, uh, they are good to go. The problem is that some products have the trifecta of bad stuff, both sodium, <laughs> saturated fats, and sugar. With meat, it's, it's really just about the fat. And, and the other thing that we need to keep in mind is that Alcantic is considering you know, ground meat as a raw product, not a cooked one, a raw product. Once you cook, beef, you're good. It, you actually meet the threshold. And oh. I don't know many Canadians that actually do eat raw beef or raw pork every single day. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people if, will drain fat off if they're browning some ground meat in a, in a pan for, for a spaghetti sauce or something. Let me play another clip here for you from Jennifer Babcock, Sylvan, from the Canadian Cattlemen's Association on yesterday's show. And here she is criticizing and questioning the intent of the labeling plan here. Have a listen, then I'll get your thoughts. The original intent of putting a front of pack label is to encourage Canadians consumers to move away from highly processed foods and yet here we have a affordable and accessible uh, nutrient-dense protein that's going to have that on it meanwhile there's highly processed foods now that that aren't having this warning label on it okay your thoughts on that is that correct that there will be some highly processed foods that are not necessarily healthy for you that will not be required to display a warning label yeah that, that is correct I mean listen we're talking about ground meats here, and some yeah. of these products have been in our diets for centuries. Uh, a lot of Canadians are proud about these products, and uh, and when we talk about food, we have to talk about traditions. Uh, we're actually going into the summer now. July 1st is around the corner. People will have barbecues uh, and probably will actually prepare hamburgers and stuff like that. It's part of our cultural culinary DNA. Um, it, it is a, it, we would become the first country in the world to actually force retailers to label single ingredient products at retail. It's ridiculous. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And what about the, uh, the fact that for a lot of Canadians, as you pointed out, this is an affordable protein option that they rely on. Why would Canada single out the beef industry here? And do you think that they should back off and drop this labeling plan for ground beef? 
Mm. Well, you would need to ask Health Canada. I mean, I don't know what's going on there. What I do see is an ideologically driven policy, really. Uh, And the intent is basically to vilify uh, a certain category. That's what I'm seeing, objectively. And so the solution is pretty simple, is to add ground meat to the list of exceptions. If not, if you do not want to do that as a federal agency, well, you need to take dairy off as well. Okay. The Canada Food Guide allows meat as part of a healthy diet in Canada. So why would Health Canada now turn around and put a warning label on ground beef? Like, is eating ground beef unhealthy for you in moderate amounts? Well, that's, again, you, you would need to ask Health Canada's position on this. Yeah. Uh, my, my take is that there's just no coherency. coherency. Uh, the federal agency really has uh, made it clear back in 2019 when it presented the new, uh, the new food guide that, uh, that meat is in, dairy is, is okay, it's there, all of these things are okay. But at the end of the day, uh, the labeling policy is not necessarily consistent with what is being suggested uh, as, uh, as dietary guidelines. So it's a bit of a head-scratcher for sure. Sylvain Charlebois, thank you for coming on with your thoughts on it today. I appreciate it. All right. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Take care. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the World Cup coming to Vancouver. Yes, it is official now. The 2026 World Cup of Soccer, Vancouver, officially named as a host city for the tournament. Vancouver and Toronto are the two Canadian cities who will host games in the 2026 World Cup. Poor old Edmonton, they lost out. Uh, They were not selected. You know what? It does mean, I think, that Vancouver likely to get some more games here as they host the World Cup in 2026 at BC Place Stadium. How much is this going to cost? Well, the estimate right now around $260 million. That's how much it will cost taxpayers to host World Cup soccer games in 2026. We've got an awesome panel on this standing by. First, let's have a listen to Walt Judas here, Tourism Association of BC. He's happy about this. Have a listen. We know all the eyes of the world will be on Vancouver for those games. So much of the visitor economy will benefit, but so will the broader economy. Tourism, happy. They think this will be a shot in the arm for them. Here's sports writer Joshua Cloak. It will bring so much more attention from the global soccer world. With Canada qualifying for the 2022 World Cup as a great lead-up to 2026. Okay, here's the deal. Is it worth the money? We're going to get, I think it looks like we're going to get five, maybe six games here in this World Cup of soccer. 260 million bucks. Is it worth it? Let's discuss both sides of it for you. Stuart Parker, president of the Los Altos Institute. He doesn't think this is such a good idea. Stuart, thanks for coming on. 
Great to be back, Mike. Okay, also on the line, Scott Rintoul, Vancouver sports broadcaster and writer. Scott, thanks a lot for coming on today. Thank you, Mike, and I appreciate the invitation. Looking forward to the conversation. You bet. So, so am I, for sure. Scott, let me go to you first. Your thoughts on the World Cup coming to Vancouver. It's a good thing, you think, right? I do. Obviously, I've had a sporting background. I believe in the power of sport to unite, not divide. It's one of very few things out there that can do that. And that's a holistic view at sport itself. But I also think simply from an economic standpoint, this is an investment in the tourism industry and in the province of British Columbia. And we can look at it as simply investing in soccer. But I think it is much broader than that, as you heard a couple of the comments coming into this segment. Okay, $260 million, still a lot of money, though. You think it's worth it, though, right? I do. I think that, I mean, you're always going to have optimistic viewpoints from those who are doing the investing, in this case, the the government, suggesting that it could bring back a billion dollars in benefits. There will be critics of that number as well. When I look at the cost-benefit analysis, to me, there are more pros. There's reason to believe that it could reach those figures. But even if it doesn't get to $1 billion, the fact that three, four times the money may come back to this province in a variety of manners, to me, suggests it's a good investment. Okay, Stuart Parker, your thoughts? Well, um, you know, I don't know whether uh, how many listeners have tried to book a hotel room in Vancouver in the past month, but um, our hospitality industry, as I predicted throughout COVID, is doing phenomenally well. Normally, hotel rooms, hotel rooms that normally go for $150 a night are going for $300 a night. And that's because, as anticipated, the tourism sector is bouncing back hard. People have been tired of staying at home, staying in their own space during COVID. So I think we're already experiencing a surge of tourism interest and investment. And I guess my problem here is let's not throw bad money after good. We already have rapid growth in the tourism sector as we recover from COVID. I think we're going to continue seeing that growth. Governments need to spend money where the private sector isn't already doing the job. The idea that you're throwing public money on top of a growing pool of private money makes very little sense to me. Public money needs to go places where private money isn't going. That's the point of public money. And what do you the figure? Just a second yeah, about the figure. Yeah, yeah. When Montreal got in on this thing, the budget was going to be fifty million. By the time Montreal bailed last year, it had gone to one hundred and three million. Now we're seeing that the budget has again more than doubled for hosting FIFA, and that number is going to keep going up because that's literally what always happens. Okay, I, that thought crossed my mind as well. That two hundred and sixty million dollars get set for it maybe to rise, especially in this era of inflation that we're living in right now. Scott, you're a sports guy in Vancouver, but you think this will be, you think it's be good for like civic pride, get people involved in, in soccer, get kids interested in the sport? Yeah, obviously there's a number of derivative benefits that come with an event like this. And, and you just mentioned a couple of them there, Mike, simply from a health and health standpoint for children activity standpoint for all ages quite frankly there's that benefit that comes with it as well and anytime we are talking about a publicly owned entity like bc place we can talk about whether or not the province should have put money into that and renovated it but that's an old discussion at this point we need to fill that venue unless they're going to sell that venue and this is the type of event that fills bc place it fills it multiple times 
And there are very few events that have the ability to do that. And if this is a publicly owned corporation that's going to own this and we need to generate funds off it, this is the type of opportunity we need to look for. Stuart Parker, your thoughts? Spending $260 million is not generating funds. Like, generate funds, that's a very interesting interpretation of government spending money. Government spending money that private business might or might not recoup. But I do agree, I do agree that children's interest in soccer and children's fitness is really important. And right now, what we have south of the Fraser is a sports infrastructure gap. We have got so much more interest in soccer in Surrey and Langley than we have field time that we've got a situation where high school students are going to soccer practice at 10 p.m. because there's that little amateur soccer infrastructure for kids to meet the current demand. I don't say don't spend this money on sports or don't spend this money on soccer. Uh, Surrey, Langley, and Delta in particular, but all over the Lower Mainland, need provincial investment because the municipal governments have not kept up with the recreational infrastructure demands there. And that that is where we need to be spending that money. The problem is not that kids are not interested enough in playing soccer. The problem right. is that we don't have the practice facilities for the kids who already are. All right, debating the 2026 World Cup, coming to Vancouver with Stuart Parker and Scott Rintoul. Hey, Scott, uh, it occurred to me that when we heard the news yesterday that Edmonton was out of the running here, and then it's Vancouver and Toronto will be the two Canadian host cities. Is that like Vancouver's gain and Edmonton's losses? That, that means we'll get more games, right? Because I remember at the start of this, there were thoughts that, well, Vancouver might get three games here. But if it's only two Canadian cities, it sounds to me like Vancouver could get five or six games here. Your thoughts? Yeah, there are many people predicting that Vancouver will, in fact, get six games. And while Toronto has yeah. been the mega center for most of our national events when it comes to, to soccer specifically, that stadium simply won't hold the type of crowds that you can get at BC Place. Yeah. If they renovate and find a way to shoehorn more people in there, the predictions are that BMO Field will get about 40,000 people in there. Well, we know 50,000 plus get into BC Place. And if you are trying to get maximum revenue generation, you're trying to get a bigger crowd supporting Canada. And this, again, is all speculation on my part. There's no, been yeah. no games announced. But the speculation is that now maybe you get a Canada game, maybe a couple of Canada games out on the West Coast, simply because you can get more support, and that leads to possibly Canada going further in this tournament with home field advantage. Yeah, and I think it does mean that it looks like Vancouver will get more games than originally thought. Stuart Parker, does that, I don't know, does that make it a better deal? I mean, $260 um, well, million. All, let's uh, let's deal with the, the, this idea that we would get more games than Toronto. More people live in the GTA than live in the entire province of British Columbia. And let me tell you, having lived in Toronto during other World Cups, um, the diasporic communities in Toronto are much more soccer-focused, much more soccer-oriented, and they will scream bloody murder if uh, we get more games than them. So I don't think it's politically realistic to think that we will get more than four games. I don't think we will even get equal to the number of games that uh, Toronto has simply because there's a very different demand for that. But both Vancouver and Toronto will end up building the same amount of infrastructure as if we got all the games, right? We're doing this in a very cost-inefficient way. There's a certain amount of infrastructure that needs to be built to host 10 games. 
that's identical to the amount of infrastructure you need for four games. Yeah. So, no, I don't see that as a particularly... I don't think I mean, that makes the case that much stronger. Speaking of that additional infrastructure, Scott, BC Place will have to install a grass field, right? Like, under the World Cup rules, these guys don't play on artificial turf. They have to play on a natural grass surface. Is that correct? Like, they're going to put a grass... That'll be a temporary grass field in BC Place? Is that the plan? Well, I don't know that it would be temporary. Who knows where technology's at at that point? Perhaps that's the type of surface they'll have in there going forward. But yes, at least on a temporary measure, they'll have to have grass in BC Place at that point in time. I don't think the costs are directly uh, tied to the number of games, uh, as, as Stuart suggested, because things like security costs obviously are variable costs on a per-event basis as opposed to a 10-game or 6-game basis. And I do think there's an argument made that there will be more games in Vancouver simply from a capacity standpoint. And, and yeah. I, I hear your point, Stuart, on the is it politically realistic to think Vancouver gets more games than Toronto? And, and there's been plenty of evidence in the past to suggest no. But in this province, Four years ago, it wasn't politically realistic to think that the World Cup would be coming to Vancouver in 2026, and and here we are. But you're right about the grass going into BC Place, which to me actually furthers a discussion on the women's side of the game because they didn't get grass fields in 2015, yeah. and perhaps yeah. we can use this as an opportunity to champion our women's team and our women's program and better equity in sports. This is a platform we can use here. All right, welcome back. We're talking about the 2026 World Cup of Soccer coming to Vancouver. We've got both sides of it. 260 million bucks. Will it be worth it? Stuart Parker, he doesn't think it's worth it so much. Scott Rintoul, he supports it. Let's go to your phone calls. Ross and White Rock. Hey, Ross, what do you think? Hey, good morning. Um, just a couple of thoughts here. So the games that we're proposing that will come to Vancouver, do we decide that or does FIFA decide that for us? Um, secondly, you know, I'm, I'm actually lucky enough. I'm, my family and I are going to go to Qatar in uh, November to watch the men's team play. Wow. And the, the process that we've had to go through to secure tickets, if it's anything like what the Qatar residents are restricted to, there won't be that many tickets available for us as local residents. Okay, let me go to Scott. Let me go to Scott Rintoul on that because I think that's some good questions you've raised. Scott, who decides which games we will get? That'll be done in consortium with the different associations and with FIFA. So it's not a strict FIFA in a vacuum decision, but certainly FIFA will have some sort of say in that. It would be hard to believe that Canada would not play home games in Canada, but beyond that, it will depend on the pools that are drawn. Yeah, do we get stuck with, like, the minnow teams, or is there a chance that we get the big power? Like, are we going to get, like, you know, Germany versus England in, in Vancouver? Like, is that possible in Vancouver? I suppose anything is possible, but yeah. that will be an expanded tournament in 2026 with 48 nations. So there will be more, as you referred to them, minnow nations or nations that don't generally qualify for the World Cup because it will be an expanded field, so there, I suppose, is a greater chance of that, and the, and the pools will be smaller in in 2026. There'll be pools of three teams instead of four. Okay. Squeeze another call in here. Pat in Vancouver. Uh, Hi, Pat. Actually, go ahead. Could, yeah, Stuart, I'm go sorry, ahead, man. Go ahead. Go ahead, Stuart. Uh, I, it is important to raise the fact that we are dealing still with FIFA. This is an organization that has faced repeated criminal charges associated with corruption for their 2010 2014, 2018 games. 
You may be wondering why no criminal charges around 2022? Well, because FIFA amended their bylaws to create a whistleblower chill clause so that people in the organization now face massive financial penalties if they if they report corruption. And we will be bound by that when FIFA shows up here. So let's remember, this is not this is more corrupt than the IOC. And this is an organization we want to take a very serious look at before we do business with. Let's go to Pat on the line in Vancouver. Hi, Pat. Go ahead. Hi. Yeah, my question was had probably to do with corruption. I want to know where the money's going. Two hundred and sixty million dollars is a lot of money. Are we going to be left with any kind of legacy buildings, or is this just all going to go into the pockets of some corrupt officials at FIFA? Scott, do you know where the money goes? Well, I don't know where every dollar of the two hundred sixty million dollars go, but I would hazard a guess that there is a big chunk of that that will go to security. Mike, you mentioned, obviously, the upgrades to BC Place that will yeah. will need to happen, and there will certainly be some bolstering of the tourism sector in downtown Vancouver that gets some of the money. But my guess, and, and you can look back on the games in, in 2010 as a part of this, that the biggest cost rise leading up to those games was security, and I would guess that you're going to see if there are rises in that estimate okay. from now, that's where okay. they would come from. Stuart, you get the last word here. you got 30 seconds. Well, I think it's important to, Rick, to put this in context. In 2026, if the Broadway plan gets voted through, if the incumbents get reelected in our civic election, we will be in the process of destroying about half of the northwest quadrant of Vancouver's rental housing stock associated with this uh, sky-trained UBC. So we won't just be facing the kind of pressure hotels and to the tourism sector already have where people are already unable to have find hotel vacancies we'll be in the middle of an intensification of the rental housing crisis in this city i think that's a poor time to invite the world okay. to come here and find a bed all right let's talk about inflation now the inflation rate at a 30-year high everything is more expensive these days food at the grocery store yeah that is going up we all know the price of gas is going up up and away everything on the rise including if you're a renter yeah rents are going up as well let's check in with paul dannison now content director rentals.ca hey paul thanks for coming on today Thanks for having me, Mike. Okay, I was just checking out rentals.ca and it's a really good tool for people who are they're looking for a place to rent. You can look at want you can look at ads on there, right? And you can search it by a map a map function. Exactly. Map or however you want to look for it and a lot of filters, so uh, a lot of options. Yeah, no, it's it's a very handy tool for people if you're looking for a place to rent. Paul, let's talk about how much rents are going up, especially right here in British Columbia. And in Metro Vancouver, I know you guys. You guys monitor this. You do reports on rents. What have you found out for BC and Vancouver? Well, rents have been going up slowly throughout the year. In May, uh, everything just hit. Uh, throughout Canada, rents are up three point seven percent month over month. That's the largest increase in three years. Vancouver has been the top of the list for our list of 35 cities for a number of months now, but this month it just exploded. Uh, one bedroom is closing on, in on $2,400, and for a two-bedroom, the average month rent in, in May is almost $3,500. Gee whiz. Oh, my God. And that's the highest, in, highest increases in Canada? Yes. Wow. By far. Wow. Okay. Like, 
2400 bucks for a one bedroom like how much is that up a year over year that's up almost 20 percent wow the two bedroom is up 24 percent and when you're looking at all property types vancouver is a little over uh, or close to $3,100 and that's a 33% increase over last May. Okay, man, that is a, that's a shock to the system for, for sure. And we live in a province that has rent control though, right? I mean, the maximum rent increase is capped by law, correct? Exactly. But what happens when somebody moves out, uh, the rents can go up a lot higher than that. Right. And yeah. So that is the, that's what we're seeing. Anybody who has to move, or needs to move, or wants to move, this is this is a pretty tough time for renters. Oh yeah, man, this is brutal. Like if you take a look at the rent control system in British Columbia, the maximum rent increase allowable supposed to be capped, but like you said. If people move out, it's a reset. And, you know, you hear about lots, you hear stories about people getting renovicted, that kind of thing. Like a landlord will say, look, I've got to renovate this suite. So you're out. And then they jack the rent up for the next tenant. Is there a lot of that going on? Well, I, th- I think that's nothing new. I think that's been going on for a while. And I think uh, a number of municipalities have taken measures to uh, tamp down any efforts to do that. Yeah, how does inflation play into this? I mean, is inflation kind of driving these rent hikes? I don't know about driving, but it's definitely a big factor. I mean, when you see prices going up everywhere for uh, for everything, I mean, as you mentioned, the price of food and gas, but also if uh, a landlord wants to renovate a place, price for lumber and paint supplies has gone up, and all of the cost that that landlord incurs gets thrown into it too. So whenever there's high inflation, um, rents are going to go up just like everything else. Yeah, no, I'm glad you mentioned that because that's sort of the other side of it, right? Like landlords will say, hey, inflation means that our input costs are going up, whether it's what all the expenses I have in maintaining a rental property, that's going up. So their costs are going up and those costs, will what, they'll get passed on to the tenant. Yes, exactly. It's like every other kind of business. You know, you whatever costs you incur, you have to make your margin or profit, uh, and things get passed on. Yeah. Speaking of Paul Dannison, rentals.ca, about rising rents in British Columbia. For people, Paul, who are, are looking for an affordable, decent place to, to rent in Metro Vancouver, like, are the rents more reasonable as you go further out into the suburbs, or are they going up everywhere? They're going up everywhere. They're a little more reasonable in the suburbs, but let's look at uh, Burnaby. It's uh, rent for all property types in in May was up a little over $2,500, and that's a 26% increase. Richmond's up 14%, uh, New Westminster 13%. Probably one of the best deals in Metro Vancouver, I mean, Metro Vancouver is going to be Surrey. Uh, but even rents are going up there, too. Yeah, that that's amazing. And when we take a look down the road with inflation continuing to rise, and I know that the maximum allowable rent increase in British Columbia, it's tied somewhere to the inflation rate. So could people experience a big rent hike next year, potentially, going forward? 
I think it'll be tied to whatever the province comes up with with their rent control uh, maximum. And but what? But again, rents are going to continue to rise for a while. So I, I don't think this is going away anytime soon. Yeah, and is this like? Uh... You know, we feel like we're really getting hammered here in Vancouver for sure, and certainly the most ex- one of the most expensive cities in the country for sure. Like, is this going on across the country though? Like, if you when you take a look at rents in other provinces, other cities, are rents going up everywhere in Canada? Most everywhere. You go from Halifax to, to Toronto, Montreal, um, Calgary. Rents have gone up twenty percent there. Um, so most everywhere they are, and especially the surrounding communities of the Metro Toronto and, and also, uh, Metro Vancouver, as people have been allowed to work from home, they're looking for more space and they can find a little bit cheaper spaces in the outlying smaller cities. So that's caused rents to go up in those cities uh, tremendously. Yeah, do you got any tips for people? Like a lot of people are looking for a place that's affordable. When you go on rentals.ca, you got any tips for using the site? Well, when you go on rentals.ca, you can put in all the things you want, you know, one or two bedroom, pets, uh, near a park or all of that, and all the all the uh, the options pop up. We also have a commute um uh, locator for you and we also have we list amenities about 18 amenities on there if you want to live close to a park or a grocery store or good schools and it ranks all the, those amenities in the neighborhood you're looking and i would also also say for renters if if you're thinking about moving you can't just all of a sudden do it you got to start about three to four months in advance yeah. and be really looking deeply and Check in with your network and check in with what's available out there and continue to look and just talk and and try to uh, get your network involved in it. Yeah. Difficult situation for a lot of people. Paul, thanks a lot for coming on today. I appreciate it. Thank you, Mike.